Good morning. Please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Romans. As we continue our study in this book, this epistle, we will um, be looking at a section, and Noah had actually started this section last week. We're doing a six-part series, basically, on chapters 9, 10, and 11. And the reason is because they deal with a specific topic, a specific issue that Paul wants to address. And last week, Noah started by asking the question, what happened to Israel? So as we look at the next three chapters, it's really important to know that Paul is speaking to the Jews primarily. And as a Jew reading the letter to the Romans, this person might have many questions about what Paul is saying. As we know, the Jews rejected the Messiah. They didn't want anything to do with him. They didn't like Paul's message. They didn't like the gospel message. And so it was a stumbling block to them. They didn't like the gospel message of salvation by faith in Christ Jesus. But the gospel goes out to not only the Jews, but also to the Gentiles. And yet as a, as a Jewish reader, they might have the questions, does God, does the gospel to the Gentiles mean that God has broken his promises to Israel? If God's people are, if Israel is God's people, why are they rejecting the message of salvation? Has God stopped dealing with Israel? And so we want to look at, as we go through these chapters, we have chapter 9 that deals with the past of Israel. We have the present in chapter 10, and then Israel's future is in chapter 11. As a, just a brief recap of what we've been talking about, last week in verses 1 through 5, Paul just expresses his deep anguish and just wishes that he would have, uh, if he could exchange his salvation in a way, uh, if he could be a curse from Christ so that his countrymen could be saved. And the idea is that they aren't believing. There's a lot of unbelief um, overall in the uh, children of Israel. His heart's desire is that Israel may be saved. So we ask the question again, is if God's promises were given to his earthly people, Israel, why are they rejecting the message? Why are they, why are they rejecting it and Gentiles are being brought in as a, um, into the place of blessing? Well, we found out that not all of Israel is actually Israel. Not all the children, not all are children because they are the seed of Abraham. Just because someone was born a Jew doesn't automatically make you a um, part of the children of Israel, the true Israel. Not all direct descendants are actually heirs of the promise. Does, does that actually surprise you if you were to think about it, that not all Jews inherit the blessings, the promises? If you think about it, in Jesus' day, Jesus said to them, um, he talked to the religious rulers and said, you know, they said, Abraham is our father. He says, no, you, you, Abraham is not your father. Um, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. You would do the works of your father. But instead, you do the works of who? The devil. Yet they were direct descendants of Abraham. They were, they were in the line of Abraham. But they didn't have faith as Abraham did. Israel isn't automatically saved just because they were, their parents or their grandparents were um, part of Israel. You don't inherit the promises just because you're in the blood, a blood relative. 
And so not all, all of the descendants of Abraham were part of the promise. And as we looked at it last week, you saw that Abraham had Ishmael and he also had Isaac. But Ishmael wasn't part of the promise. It was Isaac in whom the blessing would be called. And we learn that God is the one who chooses. God is the one who chooses. God called Abraham. God chose Abraham, and he believed God. God chose Isaac and not Ishmael. And then you have Isaac and Rebekah, and they had two sons, twins. And it was Esau I have, um, or Jacob I have loved, and Esau I have hated. God chose sovereignly that the purposes according to election might stand before they were even born, before they even came out of the womb, that Jacob would be called. So it is that God sovereignly chooses, God sovereignly elects people to salvation. And so all of this brings us to the section we are in today. We're in chapter, chapter 9, and we're doing 14 through 29. And all of this kind of brings up a lot of questions to us in our minds of, well, this, this really, um, Paul has some explaining to do. In verse 14, he says, What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. Paul anticipates the objection to this in what he said in the passage before. He says, you know, is, basically, is God unrighteous for choosing is Isaac and not Ishmael? Is God unfair for choosing Jacob and not Esau? Does God's sovereign election that mean that God is unfair and unrighteous? That's what the objector would say to Paul. And Paul says with the strongest word possible, certainly not. No way. God is righteous. God is just. And he will always do what is just and fair. We know this in the scripture, Deuteronomy 32.4. He is the rock. His work is perfect. For all his ways are just, are justice, a God of truth and without injustice. Righteous and upright is he. In Psalm 145, the Lord is righteous in all his ways, gracious in all his works. The teaching of God sovereignly electing an individual or a nation really stirred up the questions in the minds of the Jews. And today, if, if we're honest, it brings up a lot of questions in our minds too. Election is not a popular topic to talk about or discuss, and it is difficult to understand. But... Election is not something we need to be afraid of. We should actually embrace it as truth because it is what is God's, part of God's character and the Bible teaches it to us. First of all, what is, um, God, is it, the Bible says God is sovereign. What, is, what does that mean? What does sovereign mean? Well, it means that God rules the universe. God is all-powerful and he is all-knowing. God is in control. It means that nothing happens without God's permissions. God has the power to prevent or to allow something to happen as he wills. And God's sovereignty is not a new concept either. It's clearly taught in the Old Testament and the New Testament. In Psalm 22, 28, For the kingdom is the Lord's, and he rules over the nations. Proverbs 21, 1, The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Like the rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. He has power over the kings. Isaiah 46, 9 through 10, For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things that are not yet done, 
saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. God is sovereign. Nothing can stand in his way and against his sovereign will. William MacDonald wrote, to say that God is sovereign simply means to allow God to be God. God will never violate any of his other attributes that we know. He will never do anything unjust and unrighteous. And in God's sovereign plan, God chose or elected certain individuals to salvation. The Bible teaches us this in Ephesians 1.4, that he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. On the other hand, the Bible also equally teaches us that man has a free will, and he must come to him by faith. The Bible says this in John 6.37, and, and it really shows both sides to the story. All that the Father gives me will come to me. On that side, you have God's sovereign election, God's divine choice and action in salvation. The rest of the story is found right after it, which says, and the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. So when you look at the plan of salvation, on one hand, you have God's sovereign election. On the other hand, you have man's free will. And if you look at both of them, it, they, um, the two go hand in hand, and yet they seem to oppose each other. How can God sovereignly choose somebody and have free will? Am I just a robot that has to choose? Or if, God, if I, I don't have a choice in the matter, if I have free will only. So when you look at both of them, they seem at opposing ends. How can you explain it? How can you reconcile the difference? Well, the simple answer is we can't. Our finite minds really can't fully under, understand and comprehend just the vast uh, wisdom that God has, the relationship between God's, sovereign free, God's sovereignty and man's free will. They seem to oppose each other. And many people struggle with this. And, and it's a struggle when you go through this passage and read it. It's, it's very difficult, but what I want to do next is kind of give you some examples, some illustrations that help clarify this so that you can uh, understand the concepts and that we can appreciate the truths. We can illustrate it this way. Imagine if I put a pole here and a pole here, two parallel poles, and they extended all the way up into the sky, and they just kept going on and on and on forever. If I was to look up, you would see that those poles get closer and closer together on one pole, you have God's sovereign election, and on other, you have God's or man's free will. As you look, eventually, those poles seem to be on opposing sides, but they get closer and closer as they go on into the sky. And at one point, at some point, those truths intersect. And we may not ever understand that today. We may not ever fully comprehend that until we get to heaven and see God's side of it. D.L. Moody also illustrated it this way. Imagine if you were to walk up to the door of salvation. You had a door right here, and on the doorpost it said, whosoever will may come. And so that question goes out to all of the world, to every woman, man, and child, whosoever will may come. The offer of salvation is out there. And as a person approaches that door and walks through it by believing in Jesus Christ, they walk through the door and they look back on the other side of the doorpost, it says, chosen before the foundation of the world.
Election may be easier to understand in hindsight. It wasn't until after you placed your faith in Christ alone for your salvation that you really realized the full extent of what Jesus has done for you. You realize that your sins have been washed away. You realize that there's therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And guess what? God chose you. And when did he do that? Before the foundation of the world. God has a plan for you before you were even born, before the world was even formed. It should cause our hearts to worship him for his love, his mercy, and his grace to us. We should rejoice in what God has done for us. So we should embrace the doctrine of election and not be afraid of it. And if we look at this doctrine, where Christians end up in error on this doctrine is when they take one side of the truths, either the sovereign election of God or the free will of man, and fully lean on it. It's, imagine a pulley system where I have a, a pulley with two ropes on it, and both truths, election and free will, are on one side. If I was to uh, hold on to one rope, I'm going to fall down. I have to hold on to both truths at the same time for me to, not, to stay balanced. Does God's sovereign election mean he is unfair and righteous? Paul goes on in verse 15, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. Is God unjust to show mercy and compassion? Is he unjust to do that? Of course not. It is because God is merciful and compassion that we can be saved in the first place. And notice that he says this, he expresses this in a positive way. He's showing us mercy. He's showing us compassion, not showing us anger or, or wrath. Of course, um, in Psalm 86, 15, it says, But you, O Lord, are a God full of compassion and gracious, long-suffering, abundant in mercy and truth. The Bible says in, earlier in Romans, it says, all have, fallen, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Early in Romans, it also says, there is none righteous, no, not one. In light of this, it should be crystal clear to us that we don't deserve God's mercy in any way. In other words, God isn't in any under any obligation to show us mercy or compassion. He has the right to extend mercy and compassion to whomever he pleases. He isn't unfair, and he isn't unjust, and he will not do that. And if he was fair, we would be going all, we would all be sent to hell. That's what would be fair to us. That's what we deserve. And so we go on to verse 16. So, it is, so then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. Mercy isn't something that we can earn ourselves or deserve. If someone was to show you mercy, you are not getting what you deserve. Imagine a convicted murderer who is on death row. He is going to be sitting in jail for the rest of his life until he gets to his sentence of death. He murdered somebody, so he deserves to die. It would be fair, it would be righteous, 
it would be just. But if a judge decides to pardon him and to extend mercy to him, the man would no longer be receiving what he deserved. Mercy has been extended to him. So it doesn't depend on a man's desire. That man in rotting in jail might desire mercy as much as he wants, but it's not on his own effort or his own part. It is the one, God is the one who extends it and ultimately shows it to us. Why? It's God's choice. God is sovereign. And so we look at another illustration as we go on. We look at an illustration of the life of Pharaoh. And in verse 17 and 18, it says, For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills, he hardens. In everything that God does, he has a purpose and a plan. In this example, Pharaoh, chose, Pharaoh was chosen by God for a specific reason. He says to Moses, for this very purpose, God raised up Pharaoh in order that he might demonstrate his power in him. And what did Pharaoh do? Pharaoh stubbornly refused to listen to him. Pharaoh stubbornly rejected God's um, call for him to let his people go. And Pharaoh stood in direct opposition to God. It says in Exodus 5.2, as when Moses went up to Pharaoh and said, um, told him the message, Pharaoh said to this, responded this way, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and to let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, nor will I let Israel go. In Exodus 9.15, so the verse before this quotation in, in Romans, it, God says to Pharaoh this, Now if I stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, then you would have been cut off from the earth. So according to this verse, God had at least two options in dealing with Pharaoh and to deliver the Israelites from his hands. The first option, God could have wiped Pharaoh and his servants off the face of the planet just like that, and the Israelites would have been free. That could have ended the story just like that, right there. But instead, God raised up Pharaoh and specifically chose Pharaoh to be this person. God placed him in a power, position of power so that he would be a ruler over the Egyptians. And now Pharaoh may have thought that he attained this position on his own, that it was his own, um, his own skills and everything else like that. Yet God raised Pharaoh up in order that God's name might be declared to the world. He wanted God's name, God's name to be magnified and to be heard. And so this, while this is true, this begs a question, and it, we ask the question then, well, does that mean that Pharaoh was now a helpless pawn? Was Pharaoh, does he have any responsibility for his action, or is he just a helpless pawn? First of all, I want to be clear that the Bible does not teach that Pharaoh was predestined or chosen to be damned. God does not sovereignly choose to send people to hell, God holds that responsibility at the feet of man. God holds man responsible for their sin. And we'll look at that a little bit more later. 
Secondly, Pharaoh actually acknowledges his own responsibility too. Throughout the plagues, Pharaoh acknowledged his sin. After the plague of hail and um, thunder, Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron and said, I have sinned this time. The Lord is righteous, and my people and I are wicked. Sounds like he, he got it. Sounds like he understood. He didn't. <laughs> he pled with Moses to have the hail stop, and as soon as the hail stopped, what happened? What did he do? When Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder ceased, he sinned yet more, and he hardened his heart, and he and his servants. Third, the God holds Pharaoh accountable for his action and for his rejection of God. To help clarify this, I want to look at a passage in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 9 through 12. And this is talking about the end times and the coming of the, the wicked one. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan, with all powers, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth, that they might be saved. And for this reason, God will send a strong delusion that they should believe the lie, that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Responsibility is on those who refuse to believe. In the end times, people will perish because they love, refuse to love the truth, but they, and they refuse to be saved. They heard the gospel, and they chose out of their own free will to not accept it. Why did they do that? It says because they had pleasure in unrighteousness. They loved their sin more. And so their, um, their punishment is because of what they have done, their own choices. And Pharaoh is an example to us today. He's an example to sinners who have rejected the offer of salvation. God patiently and persistently came to Pharaoh over and over again to give him every opportunity to repent, to, to um, let his people go. And what did he do? Pharaoh continued to resist God, and then God gave him another warning, another plague, another plague. In five plagues, Pharaoh hardened his heart against God. He hardened his own heart. And then warning after warning, even the magicians came up to him and said, Pharaoh, this is the hand of God. What are you doing? They understood it very clearly. And yet Pharaoh continued to harden his heart. Over and over again, Pharaoh hardened his heart. He continued to do that himself. Ultimately, it was about the sixth or seventh play that God honored Pharaoh's own hardness of heart. God confirmed Pharaoh's resolve to reject him, and God hardened his heart towards God hardened Pharaoh's heart, solidifying the resolve that he had made in his own choice. How about you? Have you heard the call of God? Has he come to your life and intersected your life with um, tragedies? Or have you had friends come to you to plead with you to come to know you, to come to know the Lord, to believe the gospel? Or did you respond, who is the Lord that I should believe him? Has there been tragedy or wake-up calls, trying to, the Lord trying to get your attention over and over again, and you cry out to the Lord, just deliver me from this, 
And as soon as it's gone, you harden your heart. Hebrews tells us, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. From this story, he hardens the Pharaoh who stands up to God. From the same story, God also demonstrates his mercy and his compassion. The children of Israel were in cruel bondage, and they were in the the hands of Pharaoh. With a mighty hand, God delivered them from his grasp. And God showed the world his great mercy and compassion to the Israelites. God has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills, he hardens. Paul gave us some examples of God's sovereignty, and now he's going to give us some explanation of his sovereignty. Those who heard the story about Pharaoh and how he shows mercy on Pharaoh, shows mercy and compassion on some and hardens Pharaoh, they would go, I, I object to this. This is not, this, I can't accept this. And Paul probably heard this argument many times. He's heard it all. He says, you will say to me then, why does he still find faults? For who has resisted his will? But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? If God has the right to show mercy on whom he wishes and to harden whom he wishes, how can God hold us responsible? That's the question that is being asked. Who can resist God? If God makes these choices, how can we be held accountable to them? What does Paul say in response? Well, he doesn't really answer the question. He doesn't give him an answer. Did you notice that? Instead, he says, who are you to reply against God? In reality, I think Paul is looking at the objector and saying, your question is not valid. Your question is just an excuse for your unbelief. So instead of answering the question directly, he goes on to give an illustration of a potter working with clay. A potter can take a lump of clay and form it to whatever his heart's desire. He can create any type of pottery. He can make a beautiful vase to display on a, on a shelf for the whole house to see. He can make a pot that's used for washing or cooking. What right does the pot have to say to the creator, why did you make me this way? He's a, cre- he's, he's a pot. <laughs> God is the creator. We are the creation. What right do we as the creation have to sit in a place of judgment against God? Why did you make me this way? We have no right to say that. God is the one who creates. We cannot sit in a place of judgment against God. We don't understand God fully. His ways are far past our ways of understanding. And it's impossible for us to sit in that place of judgment. So the clay here represents lost, sinful mankind. And God is obviously the potter here. If God chose to do nothing with the clay, if he just chose to leave the clay alone, just the way it is, all mankind would be sent to hell. And would that be fair? It's exactly what we deserve for our own sin. God didn't sin. We fell into sin. We deserve it. But instead, God sovereignly elected and selected 
sinners whom he would show mercy to and his grace to. He didn't have to do anything, but instead, God chose to save you, to save me. Why did he do that? Let's look at verse 22 and through 24. What if, what if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also the Gentiles. That first part of it, what if, isn't really a hypothetical question of whether this is true or not. This is really a rhetorical question. He's asking this and stating it as fact. Paul is contending again with the objector that's going to say and stand up to God and say that God is not fair for making me this way. God is not fair for doing what he wants to do, to choosing what he wants to do. And it's as if, as Paul is saying, what is it to you if God chooses or wants to put on display his, um, his wrath on vessels of wrath and to put on display his glory on vessels of glory, on vessels of mercy? God has every right to display his wrath and he has every right to display his mercy. Not only that, it says that he endures with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath. Just as God said to Pharaoh, I could have wiped you right off the face of the planet. I could have destroyed you. And yet he doesn't do that. He could have done that, but he is long patient with sinners. He is long-suffering. Why does he do this? God puts on display his wrath to show us that he is just as punished sin. God has many attributes, and so God would be um, not displaying his full character without showing his, us his wrath. But by contrast to showing his wrath, he magnifies the displays of the glory that he sends and he bestows on the vessels of mercy. It's as if he was to just... Um, if he didn't show his wrath, he didn't show that, then we would not realize just the full extent of what God has done for us. And really, it should be something that causes us to fall down on our face to worship the Lord because of what he has saved us from. He snatched us from the, uh, from the pit of hell. And so we go on, and so as we read this, uh, these two verses, they're a little bit challenging, 22 and 23, because they bring up a, a question in people's minds that I alluded to earlier. There's a phrase in there that says, vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. What does he mean when he says that? At first glance, it might sound like these vessels of wrath were created by God for destruction. Some might say that if God chooses or elects people to be saved, then he also by default chooses the rest to go to hell. But as I said earlier, that that's not the case. And if we look at this carefully um, and what it says, then we'll we should help us understand. So the word for prepared is actually, there's two different words and two different tenses. I'm not an expert in Greek. I don't, I don't uh, mean to say that I'm a Greek scholar, but um, 
when you look at it, there's two different tenses. One is active and one is passive. And when God talks about the vessels of, uh, vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, he's using a passive uh, word for prepared. And for the vessels of uh, mercy, God is active in that. The subject of the vessels of wrath are themselves. They are vessels of wrath preparing themselves for destruction. It's, it's, God is not in that, um, that statement. The vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand, God is a subject and the verb is active. So in other words, God is saying that I prepare vessels for glory, but vessels of wrath are prepared for destruction. So God is basically taking one step back from the vessels of wrath and saying, I don't take responsibility for preparing a person for hell. God does take responsibility for preparing vessels for glory, though. When we look at all through the scripture, we know that responsibility lies at the heart of man. And in a sense, the vessels of wrath are preparing themselves for destruction. And we know this if we look in Romans chapter 2. It says, Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? But in accordance with your hardness and impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourselves wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Those who do not obey the truth, it says, indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish. Those who believe, eternal life, glory, honor, and immortality. God is patiently waiting for sinners to repent and to come to know him. 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slack or slow concerning his promises, as some count slowness, but is long-suffering toward us, willing that, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and their unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, and he will have mercy on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. The door of salvation is open. Will you heed God's offer of salvation? Or will you harden your heart like Pharaoh? Will you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering? God identifies those vessels of mercy whom he desires to show um, the riches of his glory, which he says, even us whom he called, not of the Jews only, but of the Gentiles. God has chosen and called not Jews only, but also Gentiles. And Paul is saying that he is also actively at work in not only um, the Jews and Gentiles, even, even us whom he called. He's talking about Paul and the people of the day that have believed. Paul is a Jew. And yet the Jews didn't understand how just, just really, how, how could the Gentiles be included in God's promise? So Paul goes on to explain, and he uses two different Old Testament prophets to give examples of how God even in the Old Testament, that the Gentiles were also part of God's plan. He uses Isaiah and Hosea. Hosea is first, and he says, as 
He says also in Hosea, I will call them my people who were not my people, and her beloved who was not my beloved. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people. There they shall be called sons of the living God. What's truly amazing is that in the context, and Hosea as a prophet is actually speaking to the ten tribes of the north who rejected the Lord. At that time, Israel had been taken into captivity and idolatry for rebelling against God. One commentator writes, by ethnic heritage, the Gentiles were not God's people. So Paul was led by the Spirit of God to apply these verses to the Gentiles and Jews also, who were sovereignly chosen by God and called to be his people in Christ. God's people were not the Gentiles, but God always had a plan to save the Gentiles. We should rejoice in that. Amen. We go back to our original question. What happened to Israel? Is God finished with Israel? The last three verses explain that God still has a remnant of Jews. God still has a remnant of Israel. Paul quotes from Isaiah to explain to the Jews that even though the children's population, the children, children of Israel's population has just exploded, is massive, God has always sovereignly chosen a remnant throughout the generations that would be saved. And this is consistent through, his history, through the, Israel's history. In verse 27, Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of children be, of Israel be as the sand of the sea, the remnant will be saved. For he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness, because the Lord will make a short work upon the earth. Even though Israel was rebellious and rejected the Lord over and over again, God was faithful in preserving a remnant of his people. Isaiah, and as Isaiah said before, unless the Lord of Sabaoth had left us to seed, we would have been like Sodom, and we would have been made like Gomorrah. The nation of Israel, as we know, had a special privilege, a special place with God. As listed earlier, they had, they were, there was no other nation like Israel. They were chosen, a nation chosen, his earthly people that were chosen by God. And they had all the benefits of, of the law and the, um, the glory, the covenants, the promises. All of that was theirs. But because of their rebellion, God had to leave them away into captivity and God could have wiped them out like Sodom and Gomorrah, but God was faithful and kept his word and saved a remnant. Lamentations 3.22, if it is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed, because of his compassions fail not, because his compassions fail not, they are new every morning, great is thy faithfulness. God's promises have not failed. He still has a plan for Israel. There is still a future and time and time again, God has sovereignly preserved that remnant of Israel. In the next chapters, we'll see that uh, Israel's current state and then also Israel's future, and that God has a plan for them. We can also praise God that he's also included us Gentiles into this plan of salvation. Praise God for what he has done in taking a people who is not his people and calling them his people. As I said earlier, the door of salvation is open. God's offer to accept his free gift of eternal life is there. 
Romans 10, 12 says, There is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. Forever who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved, or shall be saved. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And God's plan and purpose in salvation is just, just marvelous, and it's too great and to understand and comprehend. And at the end of these three chapters, Paul breaks, up, breaks out into praise, and he ends and says, Oh, the depth and riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor? Who has first given to him and it shall be repaid to him? For of him and through him and to him are all things. To whom be glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for your word and for the clear instruction that you give to us in it, Lord, and that you show us to be a God who sovereignly chooses and sovereignly elects people to come to know him. And yet you give us the free will as well, Lord, and we, we are grateful that you have um, uh, given us eternal life, that you give us the, the offer of salvation is on the table for all to believe and to come to know him. Lord, we, we are in awe of just your plan of salvation, how you've included the Gentiles and the Jews together in one in Christ. And we just are grateful this morning and want to praise and bless your name. In Jesus' name.